a phenomenon out of COVID has been called the great resignation. So many people, so many, many people have worked remotely for so long. They've taken stock in career choices they've made in their work-life balance, and they decided some months ago to resign and to figure out what their, their next career choice is going to be. Separate from that is something that's gotten some publicity, but I think it's become even more pervasive because of COVID. This was happening before COVID, and I'll call it the great migration, coming out of some of the top financial services firms, some of the most well-respected government, federal, as well as state agencies, coming out of law enforcement, again, whether it's the Department of Justice or places like the Manhattan DA's office or, or the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, they're leaving these traditional spots and they're going to fintech companies. But of late, they're starting to go to blockchain and cryptocurrency companies. And the, the episode today is with Amanda Wick. She is a tried and true traditional attorney, came out of Cornell, went to Vanderbilt Law, was with the Department of Justice, was with the Financial Crimes Task Force out of DOJ, has done quite a bit over her career and recently transitioned to a company that I think is very much worth your time if you're interested in, in crypto and blockchain chain analysis. She's the chief of legal affairs. And Zila Costa Grimes and I spent 35 minutes going over I'd maybe say three different topics with Amanda. Number one, how does someone within the traditional space of law or compliance, and you know, I, I generally make them interchangeable, uh, having worn both hats, how does someone move from that to a financial technology firm, to a crypto and blockchain technology firm? Amanda kind of walks us through her career pro progressions. So for you, young professionals or you mid-career or established professional, I think you'll find this rather interesting about how open she was to the opportunities and where she's found herself and how she's continuing kind of the ability to continue to kind of scratch that, that, that geek itch that she admittedly has. And I think that we all admittedly have, uh, if, particularly if you're listening to this podcast for you, the, 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 the practitioner who's interested in the space of blockchain and technology, we do, you know, get into the somewhat deeper end of the myth, myth, the myths of, you know, is this really just made for criminals? Is it so complex? Is it, is it really anonymous? Should we be throwing up our hands and really just leaving this to the, to the alts to kind of manage as we, you know, um, continue to operate within our traditional spaces. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. I very much enjoy this conversation. If there's ever been a guest who has committed to the opinions being her own, it's, it's Amanda. So do indulge me for the next minute or so. I do want to just plug you know, the podcast. This is Opinions My Own. I am Paul Caulfield. I'm an adjunct professor at Fordham Law School. It's with their support and the program of uh, uh, corporate ethics and compliance, Ava Lichter, our uh, production assistant, that we've been able to launch this and have, after just a few episodes, some very, very in interesting conversations. Please do uh, follow us on Facebook, 
You can find us on Apple. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Anchor. You can follow us on Twitter at mine underscore podcast. So we appreciate your time. We do hope that you enjoy this episode with Amanda Wick and Opinions My Own. Well, hi, Amanda. So nice to meet you. I've heard yeah. so much about you. Thanks. Um, Ditto. I wanted to kick things off, first of all, give you the opportunity. I know the podcast is Opinions My Own, and we're all kind of speaking on a peer-to-peer level. So I know kind of give your disclaimer and I really hope that we can kind of jump right into your background as soon as we kind of level set a bit. Yeah, no, I think it's great that you call it opinions my own. It certainly saves us from having to say these opinions are my own, but definitely these opinions are my own and not necessarily the views of my company chain analysis, but, um, but I love where I, I am. So usually they're pretty consistent and in line, but, uh, but I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So I today we have a, a very interesting conversation, but before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of, you know, um, many of the topics that I think may go over some people's heads, I was hoping you could kind of give us some background on you and kind of your career, where you started off, how you came to Chainalysis. Because um, I imagine it, from what I know and what I looked up, it was a very interesting path. So I'd love to know kind of how you made those choices, how you ended up here. Did you always think you'd end up here? I would imagine not, but maybe you had a sense. I don't know. Uh, I guess it depends on how far you want to go back. Um, I, I will say, I will say, I uh, very much wanted to be an FBI agent, and um, for years wanted to be a, a profiler. Uh, somebody had given me Mindhunter when I was younger, and I was like, "Oh, this is what I want to do." And uh, I had my heart set on a internship with the FBI. It spent years preparing for it, even went so far as to apply to be a meter maid in North Carolina as a summer job because you want, they needed law enforcement experience and there's not right. many things a college kid can do other than be a meter maid. Um, and when I went to interview, I remember, I think I was at the, uh, it was in Buffalo, New York, because I was in college at the time and 9-11 had just happened. Mm-hmm. And the agent walked me to the elevator and he said, listen, I can tell you've wanted this for a long time, but after 9-11, we've got grad students in Farsi, you know, applying to work for free and any other year you would have gotten this, but, but, but I hope you'll keep your interest in the FBI. And I was crushed, but I, I understood what he was saying, but I was just so crushed. And then I went back to school and I, I want to say the next week, my pre-law society had a speaker in AUSA um, and he came to talk to us about what being a federal prosecutor was. And even though I had wanted to be an FBI agent, my focus had been so much on the profiling that I really never kind of looked at like the, the court litigation part. Right. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, well, I want to be an FBI agent. Maybe we'll work together someday. And he, it's a funny joke now, like that prosecutors get, he was like, well, why would you want to be a running back when you can be the quarterback of the team? <laughs> that sounds and exactly now having been a federal prosecutor, I'm kind of like, oh, the, the, the joke, right? The joke of that is it's a kind of like questionable who is which role at which times, but he made such a good argument for being a federal prosecutor that I was like, oh, tell me more. This is a great thing. And so then the next, you know, uh, I knew I wanted to go to law school. Um, as soon as I got out, like I, I tried to get on that path. It's very, it's very difficult to become what's called an assistant U.S. attorney in the field. There are extremely selective positions. They're oftentimes incredibly competitive. So 
Sometimes it's it not feels a like path. Like you, you can't yeah, get sometimes that job out of law school. <laughs> say that again. You can't get that job out of law school. It's not a direct. It's very path. difficult. Yeah. It's very difficult. Well, historically, it's usually kind of a job where you need at least, if not three to five, sometimes five to seven years of experience. Um, and I had had kind of a non-traditional path coming out. So um, I was really lucky. The Atlanta U.S. Attorney's Office, under the hiring freeze, had an unpaid special assistant program where you could go work for free. And I was watching an interview with, I think, Olivia Munn, and she said this quote that Jon Stewart told her, where um, it's really scary to bet on yourself, but if you go all in on you and win, you win big. And so I quit my six-figure firm job and went to work for free for the Atlanta U.S. Attorney's Office and had the greatest year of my life. And I tell people, if you can do a job for free for a year and never notice that you're not getting paid, you've officially found the greatest job in the world. I can't believe that Olivia Munn and John Stewart were, were without, that's a pretty good quote. I, I watched it and it felt kind of life-changing. Yeah. Um, and, and she was right. That job was really kind of like, basically like a one-year audition, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. A position opened in Birmingham, Alabama, and I got to run a financial task force there. And then I was hooked. Uh, I got to work in the St. Louis U.S. Attorney's Office. And then uh, Maine Justice wanted some prosecutors who had field experience. And I was specializing in money laundering, especially crypto money laundering. And I came to D.C. And I've been um, really lucky to kind of train prosecutors and agents. And then I found and then this company uh, posted a position to basically get to do that for people around the world. And I was like, how can you say no? So it's been an amazing ride. So what was it like kind of starting making that transition from the private sector to prosecution? Because it's, it's a, that's a big change, even though I'm sure you use many of the same skill sets and kind of were you doing financial crimes work at the firm or was that new to you when you started? In government? No, it was it was very new to me when I started. Um, it, it was a big shift. I had always wanted to be a trial lawyer. So I was trying I was doing um, I would say court work like what we would call civil practice or civil litigation. Um, and when I got to the government, it was learning so much. Um, I was really lucky that I had some mentors who were exceptional financial, um, not just investigators, but, but I think the best AUSAs were the AUSAs who learned what their agents needed to do so that they, they could make sure that what was being done in their cases was the best way to do it. Um, and that included financial investigations. And I um, have always been like a giant nerd at heart. So geeking out on financials was really cool. And, and truthfully, I learned really quickly that um, if you didn't take the money, if you didn't follow the money and recover the money, oftentimes victims were not, I mean, they didn't care if a guy got 20 years, if their lives were in ruins, right? So trying to get money back and recover it for victims was huge. And then also I had guys who, you know, you'd sit across the table and, you know, if you took their house or mom's house or the car or all the stuff that they bought, they'd, they'd ask for more time. They'd be like, well, I'll take more jail time. Just don't take away the stuff because that's what they're doing it for. So getting into the financial part just kind of felt like the, the real, I don't know, deterrent, like there were so many good things about it. And it's one of the things, frankly, that the department historically has needed to do better on um, just because it's so much more work. It's so much more time. It's so much more resources. Um, and so it kind of became a mission within the mission. Um, and there was a handful of us, I would say the asset forfeiture attorneys who 
It's a really technical nerdy area. We were always kind of like the ugly redheaded stepchildren of the department. But because of that, it's a really tight group. Most of us still around the country know each other, are very close. Um, it's a tiny cadre of subject matter experts um, and, and it needs to grow, <laughs> like it really needs to grow. Um, but it was like being raised by, you know, a family of federal prosecutors and they're some of my closest friends and they're some of the most brilliant minds uh, in asset forfeiture today. And, and it's a, it was, it was a great experience. When you transitioned from justice and prosecution, federal prosecution to back to the private sector, number one, you had the transition back. How was that? And then also how was it into, you know, chain analysis uh, into cryptocurrency and if into you know the the topic of this discussion how'd you find that that twofold transition it was really interesting so when i first started in crypto as a prosecutor it was because one of my agents came in and said hey um have you ever heard of a bitcoin and i said i have not what, so year, what year was this for for context 2012 2013 okay. maybe okay and so it was relatively new now i guess it had been out for a little bit but like i don't think we had seen it like a lot in cases at the at the department um there was a small 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 group of prosecutors who were touching it let me put it that way and so i had to do a lot of googling and a lot of what we call youtube university and so it, we just kind of like i just kind of ended up having to teach myself and i reached out to some what we would call crypto ogs which is like michelle corver who's now you know the digital currency council for fincen she was a federal prosecutor in Denver who got into this stuff very early on and was one of the first and has basically been, frankly, like the leader in the field. Um, and I, we just had to learn. And I had a, a case where a entrepreneurial spirit had figured out that there were these dark net markets like Silk Road and people were selling um, drugs online for crypto. And then they wanted to convert it to cash. And then they had cash that they wanted to convert into crypto. And wouldn't you know there was a huge market to do that without conducting any kind of identification checks um, and helping them conceal their proceeds, which, which in the business we call concealment, money laundering. And so I ended up prosecuting one of, one of the early money launderers uh, on the darknet, and it ended up being an amazing case where I learned a lot. And then I just kind of got into crypto laundering, uh, crypto money laundering sorry, prosecuting. I did not get into crypto money laundering, to be clear. Just critical use of words there. Um, but when I was a prosecutor, um, one of the software, the, the software that our investigators use is called Reactor, and it's made by Chainalysis. Um, and so I was familiar with the company and I knew their product because that's what my agents were using to kind of visualize cryptocurrency trans uh, transactions and, and follow the money. And so later on down the road, when I left Vincent and came here, I think the transition was actually, I was really lucky because the transition was pretty smooth. When I was in the government, I was, part of my job was explaining to 12 jurors, right? Or, or a judge, like how crypto worked and, and its nature and kind of taking something that seems really complicated down to like a very understandable level so that people could understand it. And that's kind of what I do now in my job at Chainalysis. I think the difference is, is um, we have a joke that startup companies run in dog years. So I think I've been at Chainalysis for like 11 months and it feels like years just because it moves so fast. And crypto already moves so fast, like every day something's coming out. So when you add the speed of crypto with the speed of a startup, um, it, it's, 
it, it feels like I've been doing this a lot longer than I have, but it feels like you're on this like wild magical ride that you're just kind of like, this is awesome. Let's see how it goes. Well, one of them, we, so the, the three of us in, in the, in the preview came up with these myths that we were going to kind of talk about, but the first myth, and maybe it's with reactor, the myth is, you know, the cryptocurrency, whether it's a blockchain, whether it's a Bitcoin, whether it's ether, like maybe even Monero, these privacy coins, that they're totally anonymous and myth or reality? Myth. I think even when it was created, I, I, as far back as I can remember, we always knew that it was pseudo anonymous, right? In the sense that, you know, the transactions are publicly available on a blockchain. So you can see them, they're very visible, but if you were to go see them and it's kind of hard for people to picture this, if you were to go see them, it would just be a, a string of alphanumeric numbers, right? And it would be almost like the equivalent if you just saw millions of bank account numbers, right? And if you just saw millions of bank account numbers, you would have no idea what that meant. You wouldn't know the people, you wouldn't know the context. It's non-persona transaction details, but it is every transaction, right? So everything sent, everything received, timestamps, et cetera. And so then the question is, is, well, how do you connect that to a real world persona? That's what my company does, because what we do is we analyze all this transactional activity. And obviously, like we have, you know, secret sauce stuff where we, you know, basically gather tons of data and then we cluster addresses and we attribute them to, to large services. But those services are really important because let's say, you know, Paul, if you were to buy crypto and you attach and you sent funds from your bank account, say to Coinbase to buy to buy crypto, if I can track right your your crypto back to your Coinbase account. Well, Coinbase is a regulated entity in the United States. They have KYC protocols or, excuse me, know your customer protocols. And so a, a law enforcement agent could just issue a subpoena to Coinbase and say, well, whose activity was this? And they would say Paul. So eventually it can be tied to a persona. So that's why we say it's pseudo anonymous. But that perception that it's anonymous, I, I'm always torn because I'm like, I do want criminals to keep thinking that because it's so wrong so often and it's so good for us that they don't know how traceable it is. And so <laughs> there's a part of me that's like, don't distribute this too widely to the people I don't want to see it. <laughs> I, will say, I will say that is often a myth I hear even clients. So um, as Paul knows, and as you probably know, I work at a law firm and we advise a lot of major banks and it is an instinct that people have. It's like, oh, we can't engage in this. It's too risky. We have no idea who we're dealing with. I'm like, well, you do know who you're dealing with to an extent. If you're limiting it, like you said, to Coinbase or other regulated entities, you know who you're doing business with. It, it, it's funny that you mentioned that you, when you talk with banks, because I, when I was talking with Paul, uh, I said, you know, I do a lot of presentations to bankers groups, especially folks in, in uh, BSA AML work. And one of the things that kind of blows my mind and and I understand it because like whenever new technology comes out, there's like, like there's like a fear, a bias, right? It's like scary. And especially if there's misinformation out there, like that can really kind of like muddy the waters. But I'll have conversations with folks at, at financial institutions, not necessarily banks, even, you know, credit unions. And we'll have the conversation about like the actual amount of criminality involved in crypto. And, and we can, you know, talk more about that if you want. But when I talk with them and I, and I, and I talk with financial institutions, some of them may actually be banking either marijuana businesses or marijuana related businesses. And they've taken on that risk because they've said, oh, look, we, we can look at the FinCEN guidance. There's a way to handle this. And I'm like, understand, crypto is not illegal. 
marijuana is actually still a controlled substance. So if you're talking about taking on a mitigable risk in, in banking marijuana or, or MRBs, but crypto seems to you to be this like insane risk, then, then we have to have a conversation about how you guys are assessing risk because that, that means you don't understand crypto and you don't understand how amazing tools are that allow you to accurately assess the risk in crypto. And I think that's the biggest challenge that we have in crypto is that educational slash bias gap where people think it's, it's all criminal money and it's untraceable. You know what? I've, I've, I've used the analogies of the money service businesses around 2004, five, six, and you had, these are the, um, uh, a post office. These are trans uh, transunion. Um, this is Western. Pardon me, Western Union. Um, this is the the remittances that you can go into your deli if you're you know somewhere in you know Manhattan or any of the boroughs to 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 send money. And back then you had your MSBs. None of them were registered. Very few were. And then then you started to see the 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 guardrails. You had a, a group that was going to go and register themselves with government. They were going to uh, have a, a program and uh, really know their know their originator. And very quickly, you started to figure out, okay, we can bank money service businesses. And I'm, I'm speaking very broadly in, in we in the financial services field. I There's very, very similar um, – there's a look and feel that's very similar to what's happening right now. And even I think one of your um, – one of your one of your partners just gave a a recent uh, discussion about the SEC, the red flags when you see in um, uh, investor red flags, uh, very very similar. And so, you know, I'm always trying to find you know analogies. But what do you have similar analogies as you try and break this myth down that this is something completely new and therefore, first off, calling it crypto for some reason makes it sound you know super scary. I think part of it is because some people don't even know what crypto is or why it's called crypto, right? And sometimes the, the discussion I have to start with people, actually, the best discussion sometimes to have with people is they think it's a Ponzi scheme from the jump, right? Because they're like, I don't understand. So it's like computer money. And I, explaining to people the concept of historically, there's some fantastic YouTube videos on this that are hilarious. I, I strongly, I strongly suggest them. But explaining to people the concept of how we've defined money and value historically, right? Like that at one point in time, puka shells were an acceptable form of payment and it was, you know, valued and, but they're very breakable, right? So, you know, portability of a puka shell was a problem in terms of its long-term viability as a, as a financial system. But when you think about that, the idea of somebody saying, well, look, we want to have a decentralized ledger, right? Because one of the problems in compliance, and Paula, you know this better than anyone, banks are like black holes, right? Like you're so dependent on each financial institution's ability to look within its own data in that silo. And then for each of them to communicate with each other, that the idea of a decentralized ledger system where you can see all of the transactions, it's, it's actually hard to analogize to people, um, but it's, one of, it's a system that you kind of have to, I, I don't try to explain cryptography to people. Like I don't, right? And the reality is, is most people don't understand cryptography and you don't need to understand cryptography to invest and understand and participate in the market. I own stocks. 
I cannot tell you how the price of a stock gets assigned. I cannot explain to you a market maker. I took that course and then ended up auditing it. I was like, right? Like it's complicated, but most of us are at a place where we understand the stock market, right? Buy low, sell high. Do I need to know more than that? You can get there with crypto. It's just that it is absolutely a technology that requires a technological understanding. And as a lawyer, I can tell you like, you know, at least me, as a Luddite, I go out of my way not to do, it took me forever to move from flip phone to smartphone. And I fought like kicking and screaming. And if that's where a lot of the world is, then the move to digital finance is difficult because it's a lot, it's, it's more complicated than a smartphone, but we are getting it to a place where it's not so complicated. And then I think you'll see massive adoption. Well, that was going to be my, my next question, which is it, there was a time when it felt like this very niche thing you only heard about in certain circles. Then there was a time when you kind of only heard about it from maybe younger folks or kind of uh, startup companies. Now I feel like every day I'm hearing of a new crypto that's coming out or some major institution that's getting into the space in some way. You said you're kind of waiting for a couple more things to come before major adoption by the industry? Do you think we're there? Do you think we're almost there? How far are we? Are we I never going to get there? Is, <laughs> no, is this, I, I, so let's go factor fiction. Is this for the kooks and the alts or is this, is this getting mainstream? No, no, I really do think it's getting mainstream. I think, I think what's hard in the United States is it's hard for people to kind of understand the use case for this because a lot of people think, oh, it's like an alternative investment vehicle, right? Like it's a, it's an asset class like, okay, you'd have gold, you'd, you'd, have, you'd, have, you'd invest in crypto. And for the most part, like the, the, the asset class use case is pretty established. And you see that in people who are buying Bitcoin or, or buying Ether. But when you get to the, when you get to ERC-20 tokens and when you get to the, the, the technology behind like what's happening and blockchain technology, when you get beyond cryptocurrency, and a lot of people don't understand this, cryptocurrency is the currency that's generated by some of these technologies, but the, the blockchain technologies by themselves, blockchain technology is different than cryptocurrency, right? And the use applications of this from everything to the transportation industry to the healthcare industry, right? Huge. That's before you get to like the use case of payment systems. If we can fix a couple of things in crypto, right, which, which companies are actively working on, the use case is amazing. Like we hear it, it's hard in the United States because we're so banked in the United States. Like, and, and I, I had a conversation uh, about a month or so ago with uh, Chris Brummer at, at uh, Georgetown because we were talking about like financial inclusion and what crypto can do. It's very difficult to explain to people in the United States the concept of financial inclusion because most of us are pretty banked. We might be underbanked, but we're, but we're usually banked and our culture is raised on that idea. And it's like a, a, it's something that we really take for granted. But if you live in a country where you don't trust the government and you don't want your money in a financial system, like I think somebody, I was remembering like, uh, it was like Greece a couple of years ago or something where people were fighting to get their money out of banks. And we just saw in Afghanistan lines miles long, people trying to get their money out of banks. And there are stories of people who basically escaped Afghanistan where the Taliban took everything they owned and they had their recovery seat in their pocket and were able to keep their crypto. They're, literally, that was all they were able to carry out. And so when, 
when people talk about the use cases for this, like the, the immense possibilities of this technology, as it becomes, as it matters more and more, and as we get to a point where people are kind of willing to say, okay, this is a real thing, it has real uses, how do we preserve it? How do we make sure that we regulate it without crushing innovation in this space? That is right now, I think, the, the industry's question. And we've just, we haven't seen regulation partially because I will tell you, there aren't a ton of people in government who understand this stuff and that's a problem. Just, right? just, ye just yesterday, um, you know, we're, we're recording this um, in middle of September. Um, uh, Gensler, Gary Gensler, the chairman of SEC, was saying that he, you know, he needs more people in order to wrap their regulatory brain around this because, I mean, I think as of today, there's 6,000 plus uh, cryptocurrencies and that's just, that's just currencies that, and then, you know, what do you do when you talk about the different types of, you know, asset classes? So I, I agree with you on the, on the supply, the use cases, and I've seen this actually viable on supply chain. If you think of like food coming out of China and, and trying to track um, any, uh, contaminations, being able to do it very quickly and, and completely to, to ring fence around if you've got a contamination. The, the technology knowledge gap is, I think, one of the biggest uh, security concerns that we have. If I told you the number of people in government that I worked with, talked to, who don't really know this stuff or understand this stuff or, or don't see the need to, it, I think that's the biggest problem that we have. And it's actually at a level where I mean, we were saying in the government seven or eight years ago, danger, Will Robinson, danger, right? Like we need more than the five of us who are doing this to understand crypto, right? If less than 10 people in the Department of Justice are subject matter experts, let alone working on crypto, that's terrifying, right? You, you just can't have that few people. And what we just, what we're starting to see, but what I'm, I'm really hoping in the next few years, and, and ironically, I think ransomware is probably one of the things that is, that is, inadvertently helping this is a sudden focus on the ramifications of the U.S. not taking cybercrime and the risk of cybercrime and the lack of training and knowledge in the cyberspace as a serious enough national security risk to actually put resources towards training and enablement. Because what we see constantly are these bills that pop up or Congress is doing something and it's like, well, write a report and study this. And I'm like, do you know how many people in the government are working 14, 16 hours, 20 hours a day on this? Like I have friends that are literally sleep deprived that are sleeping on couches in their offices because this is such an urgent issue. And there's so few of them and there's so much work to then add a meeting and add a report. It's like, don't do that. Give them bodies, give them tools, give them what they need to actually solve this problem. But if you don't want to spend money and you just kind of want to like talk about it, that's not going to get it solved. And the problem is, is Colonial Pipeline was a gas shutoff. If the next one's really bad, everyone's going to be running around pointing fingers at why didn't we do this? And the answer will be, what did you actually do to solve this problem other than ask for a bunch of more reports and meetings? Because if you didn't give them what they needed to help the situation, then all you did was overwork a bunch of people who were already overworked. They get burned out. They're hearts get crushed, their souls get sucked out. And then they're like, you know what? This is too painful. And then they leave the government and it's devastating. Yeah. And then it's a, it's a brain drain, as you said, you, now the few people that actually knew what was going on are gone. Um, and, 
we do get we do get to help from outside. Like one of the best parts of my job is industry does work really closely with regulators and government, but it's different when you're when you're it is different when you're on the outside and no longer in the inside. And we can only help so much. Well, that was going to be my question because I think there's been a lot of um, attempts from what I've seen, especially with Vincent and like the innovation labs and all types of regulators to say, hey, let's partner with the private sector. They have bodies, as you say, they have time and industry expertise, and they're on the front lines in a lot of senses of seeing what's out there. Um, you know, we talked about it in our last podcast session, you know, financial institutions are the ones filing the SARS on a lot of the activity you're seeing. They're seeing it for the first time, they're identifying it. Do you think those partnerships are fruitful enough? I mean, it, it sounds like you think there needs to be more talent in the government, but maybe some of these public-private partnerships can do some of that work? I do think they're really fruitful, and I do think there's a number of them going on. FinCEN does an amazing job. They have exchanges, uh, the, the FinCEN Exchange, where they bring in industry members. They have innovation hours. I think FinCEN, one of the reasons I was, I was incredibly grateful for my opportunity, for the chance to be there, what they are doing in this space, at like, especially when Mike Mosier was there as the, um, uh, both as the number two and then also when he was acting director, but having somebody who really understands the technology, I mean, they have been pushing um, just an incredible interaction with industry, really like wanting to kind of get voices and, and get input, but also do it right, which is really important. I think one of the issues is, is that this isn't just Finson, right? Like the SEC is involved. And the, the question will be, can we get somewhere where all of these agencies are having discussions with industry and it doesn't end up being like a, a okay, well, this is mine and, and, and kind of like a, um, a jurisdictional battle over what's what, because there are aspects of the technology that make it unclear, right? Crypto is so many different things. It could be a security based on its behavior. It also, it could also be a registered, it could be a money services businesses that needs registration. Like it could be three different things at once, also a commodity, right? So you have all these agencies with possible overlapping interaction and the conversation with industry is really important. I think, I think the question is going to be how much does government listen to industry? Some agencies I think are doing that better than others. Some agencies have internal expertise. There are some of the, some of the most brilliant minds in the world on crypto are currently at FinCEN. That's not the case at most government agencies, right? Some of them don't have any subject matter experts, let alone as many as FinCEN does. So when you're in that bucket, it's kind of like, well, hopefully they'll talk with industry. Hopefully they'll listen to industry, but the beautiful thing right now is kind of like this flow where people from government went to industry and people from industry are going to government. Because at least in my opinion, right, and I'm really glad that it's our opinions only, I think where we need to end up is somewhere in the middle. This is going to be a balance, right, between responsible innovation and making sure that whatever regulation we put into place doesn't stifle innovation, but achieves the goals of you know, anti-money laundering and countering terrorist financing as it should be applied to this technology. And that's the really hard question that has to be answered. What does that look like? Um, and it's redesigning the house that is, you know, BSA that was, you know, built in the seventies for cash. And we what, basically kind of have to like rebuild that. What, an encouraging thing you just said about FinCEN, and I, I never worked there, but I've, I've known that historically they've had um, 
they've been strapped for resources, they've been strapped for technology, so that they have um, crypto uh, experts or SMEs, subject matter experts, that's encouraging. The, I probably have quoted this book by Roger Lowenstein, uh, America's Bank. He wrote it in, 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 in 2015. It was about the founding of the Federal Reserve Bank with the act passed in 1913. And within the first few pages, and I think I even told this to you, it talks about how in the 1850s, there were so many different currencies within all the different states with, that were backed by only those uh, local banks. There was nothing, there was no central bank. This is a quote that I just knocks me out. This is about 1950. Money, generally, gold or silver, was something of intrinsic value. Circulating paper, even though it served as a medium of exchange, was but a token, a promise of the real thing, discounted according to the degree to which people feared that the promise might not be kept. Like we're, here's my hope. My hope is that when we, when we, when we, when, when those found the new whatever that hopefully provides greater, that encourages the transparency, encourages the, the, the global market adoption that we've got then those currencies that we, re those cryptocurrencies that really do what um, has helped the, the under and unbanked. If you think of what, you know, M-Pesa did in Kenya with just, you know, minutes being able to trade those back and forth. I'm a, I'm a huge optimist with this. I, I really do think that there's an opportunity. I, I'm, I'm pragmatic that I hope we, we, the government doesn't overstep its bounds, but I will say this, it's just our US government. There's other governments out there that could be the leaders in, uh, in, in, in helping these become you know, globally adopted. As El Salvador has had some uh, fits and starts of late, but I'm generally optimistic with the use cases, with the governance that could be around it and our own ability to, to, to surveil and you know, keep the criminals in check. What do you think and what is, what is what is Chainalysis doing publicly to kind of advance the cause? So there's so much good stuff in there. I'm trying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick some. So I think something that you raised that's really important is the understanding that digital currency is different than cryptocurrency. Because I see people use that uh, title interchangeably and they're not, they're like, they're like Venn diagram, they're like Venn diagram circles where one is under the other, but there's a lot of digital currency that's not cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is a type of digital currency, right? That's based on cryptography. But something that you kind of alluded to, whether it was purposeful or not, is the concept of, well, what if you had a digital currency that was just backed, right, by a government, like essentially like the paper dollar. And we generally call those CBDCs or central backed digital currencies. And this is a really hot topic as you kind of alluded to, because other countries, including China, um, are already talking about or may even be close to or may, may even have a digital yuan. And then we just saw in the news the other day where I think Russia was talking about creating a digital ruble, right? If a lot of the U.S.'s power comes from the strength of the dollar and the United States doesn't get a digital dollar and these other currencies catch up or even outpace us, that's a national security issue. That's just gone beyond payments and like now we're talking about like the global economic system and global powers being impacted by a country's kind of 
um, I don't want to say failure, but a, a country being behind, right, in terms of like the digital currency race. So people tend to think, well, it's cryptocurrency. Oh, cryptocurrency is a type of digital currency, but there are others out there that people are really looking at right now. And actually some countries, I want to say the UK, are actually really focusing on that first, right? It's kind of like, let's look at CBDCs first, and then we'll look at cryptocurrency as kind of like a, a, an alternative. Because like right now, it's in some ways, I feel like regulators are like ER doctors and it's like triaging, like what's bleeding the worst? What's the most urgent thing that we need to look at, understand and regulate? And understandably, because of that, the easiest thing is, is well, what if we have like a central backed, you know, digital X, you know, currency? That's a, I think for some, a top, a, a topic that's easier to attack and in, in some ways more critical. My company's focus is, is obviously on cryptocurrencies. Um, although, you know, we, we analyze tons of, of, of blockchains and, and what we do is de-anonymize blockchains. I think the really important thing that we do, and it's funny because somebody once asked me when I was a baby prosecutor, when I was an early prosecutor doing crypto, we used to say like, this is all criminal money. Like we would tell, you know, jurors, like, look, you don't, you only use this to buy dope on the dark net. Like nobody's using this like to do legitimate stuff. We had no data for that, right? But it was just like anecdotally, we felt very strongly, right? This is all criminal. Realistically now though, we have a ton of data. And one of the things that people don't understand is, is that because of chain analysis and companies that are analyzing this data and have been historically analyzing this data, the, the view of the blockchain is so much sharper and clearer that now you can do so much in compliance and investigations that it's, it's so possible to do things that previously people didn't. So if you can do compliance, if you can do investigations, well, now it's a conversation of, well, now, now we can talk about cryptocurrency being widely adopted and used by everybody around the world because we can regulate it, because we can make it legitimate. Like back then it was a little trickier. Um, but now it's, it's a much easier conversation. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so with that, I think we'll, we'll close it out. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. This was such an interesting conversation. Amanda, no, I had you. a really good time. They were great questions. Thank you. All right. Take care. Take care.